Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to acclaimed New York Times bestselling author Delilah S. Dawson. Readers know her as the writer for Phasma, Galaxy's Edge Blackspire, and her latest, Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. I am such a fan of Delilah, and especially her latest book, which I highly recommend. Some spoilers abound, so read it and come on back. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 154, Delilah S. Dawson. I mean, before we get started in Star Wars and in the new book, I kind of want to just go all the way back to what inspired you growing up, what you were reading, what you were watching, what made you creative? What made you inspired? Well, growing up, I was a, a weird, lonely child. If this book is, you know, tells you anything about me, it's that I was a weird, lonely child who didn't fit in. So um, books and TV were kind of my world because I, I had trouble making friends. But, you know, books told me how to be around people and how to, uh, you know, what was expected in conversation and what didn't didn't work. So I read a ton and I was reading uh, very much ahead of, of my reading level. So like, <laughs> I, you know, I was reading Stephen King in yeah. like fourth grade, <laughs> which I think you can tell the people who have. Right. right. Um, and, you know, back then TV wasn't kind of on demand. It was you got what you got and you right. had limited channels and they were, you know, abridged movies and commercials everywhere. So, you know, I was sleeping on Star Wars sheets before I'd actually seen A New Hope and I didn't get to see it until it came on TV on like a Sunday at three o'clock in between commercials to be sure that uh, Jedi was the first one that I saw in the theater. So it was all, you know, going into the mixing pot. I remember how I had, you know, the the book where you were reading Star Wars and then R2 would go to tell you to turn the page on your right. tape recorder. So it's 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 I was I was big into into all of that. Um you can see my My Little Ponies here along with my uh Little House on the Prairie collection from when I was a kid behind me on the bookshelf. So, yeah, books, movies were were everything. I love it. How do you how do you take that and turn it into something tangible, turn it into a career, turn it into something that you're able to also then creatively output. What was kind of your your process and your journey there? Well, I was a visual artist. Um, so I, I have an art degree, which is pretty useless. And I worked in nonprofit art centers and painted murals and taught kids art classes. And then I had kids and I stayed home with them. And after my second kid was born, he stopped sleeping around nine months old. So I was getting like three hours of sleep a night. I started hallucinating and I went to my husband and I was like, hey, just curious if you've heard the rats in the walls whispering. And he was like, okay, let's get you some sleep, but you need a hobby. He was like, right. all you do all day is take care of babies. You don't you don't paint anymore. And I was like, well, paint's poison. Like every yeah. art supply is poison. And when you have babies crawling on the floor, they can't eat a piece of, you know, pastel right. or something. Right. He was like, so write a book because, you know, all you need is a laptop and a TV tray and a bobby and, you know, you can write a book. So I was like, my brain was so broken. I was like, Okay, I'll try it. <laughs> um, and so that's how I wrote my first book, which is a very bad book. It started out with with diarrhea um, in a in a an Athens port city in Greece. So it was a very bad book. But um, by the third book, it, I got pretty decent and sold it. Um, and so that's that's how I started writing uh, yeah. at thirty one. And then I started out with my own series. So like my first series was vampire romance. Then I kind of moved through other things until I. Um, wooed and stalked Star Wars for years until yeah. they agreed to let me write for them. Well, I'd love to dive in on that because that's always, obviously, people love to hear how to break into Star Wars and all that stuff. But obviously, you had a, a long journey to get to before 
you know, you get the first call to write the first Star Wars thing. What was that process? What had you learned? And then how, like when you first get that call, what is, what is, um, what is that like? And what do you have to really do? I guess my first book came out in 2012. And shortly thereafter, I think maybe in 2013, you know, back then Twitter was um, kind of our lifeline. It was how a lot of writers learned about writing back then. It was a smaller place. It was like a water cooler. Editors and agents gave lots of um, you know, healthy info. There were blogs that were dedicated to this. So everything I learned about being published, I learned pretty much from Twitter and from doing Google searches and finding blogs. And uh, so I got to be friends with Chuck Wendig. And yeah. He tweeted that he wanted to write a Star Wars book. And within a year, Aftermath was out. <laughs> he tweeted that I wanted to write a Star Wars right. book. And it was like crickets. Right. So I asked my agent to send, you know, all of my most adventurous books to the Del Rey editors. I asked my friends who'd written Star Wars to put in a good word for me. So I had as for Chuck and Kevin Hearn and mm. Ty and Daniel and all the James S.A. Corey, you know, all my buddies that wrote Star Wars to put in a good word for me. And then one day I got the, uh, it wasn't a phone call, it was an email about writing The Perfect Weapon, um, which is the Bazine Natal novella that's, you know, centered around Force Awakens. And that was, that was a very exciting moment. Um, I actually, I lived in the mountains at the time and all we had to, as a grocery store was a Walmart. And I, when I was there one day and I saw a cupcake, um, only one Darth Vader cupcake amid all of the, you know, like Paw Patrol and Ladybug <laughs> sure. Girl and, you know, the happy stuff. There was one Darth Vader cupcake and I bought it and I was like, okay, I'm going to put this in the freezer. And when I get to write Star Wars, I'm going to eat it. And it's going to be like, this is my my magic that I'm going to perform yeah. my dark spell. And like two weeks later, I was like, it hasn't happened yet. This is trash. I just ate, like I rage ate it like a raccoon at the sink. I was like, I don't, I don't care anymore. And then the next day I got that email. <laughs> so, <laughs> So it worked. Look at that. Yeah, Dark Magic still have the Darth Vader ring, the there plastic black Darth Vader ring. That's so great. Yeah, so that was my my first my first work was was the perfect weapon, um, which was just it was actually pretty different from um, the books I'm writing now because in between, you know, the perfect weapon and Phasma, the Delray Star Wars editors uh, kind of changed changed regimes, and mm-hmm. so it's you know it was it was kind of different folks than I worked with on that first one, mm-hmm. so. It's all been wonderful, though. I remember when that novella came out. It, it was just such a, an interesting and fun time in, like, Star Wars publishing. And just, Star, like, the, the, the hype and the excitement around everything really fed into the books. And you mentioned the Aftermath trilogy. Like, it really was just kind of like, oh, like, everything is connected. Everything is happening. Like, it was just such a great moment. And then, obviously, when you come in and kind of join that cabal of writers and it becomes this kind of, like, holistic galaxy that is taking place on the page because then when when phasma came out as part of you know uh, what is it called journey to the last jedi or whatever it it really is just again really kind of it fits so perfectly and when you're given that opportunity to write a full novel for a very you know marketed important character in, in star wars and give her her actual backstory what do you have to do in that situation to kind of make sure it's grounded, make sure it's real, make sure it's like a Delilah Dawson book, make sure it's it's also your voice? Yeah, you know, I think that the Del Rey editors and the folks at Lucasfilm are really good at selecting writers to bring very specific projects to life. You know, it's not random. They they very much match the writer to the kind of book that they want. So it was a really amazing experience for Phasma. In order to write it, I had to read The Last Jedi script. And at that time, it was still under filming. It was changing daily, which meant that they flew me out to the Lucasfilm Studios. Uh, no, not studios. You know, the, the building with the Yoda in front of it, like yeah, the, the headquarters. Yeah. yeah. Where they have like an actual Mando suit inside. Um, <laughs> so they flew me out there and I got to go in 
And I met Mike Siglane, he's the head of Star Wars Publishing, and he took me to Java the Hut and bought me like a 30 ounce mocha because they have their own, like they have their own cafe inside their yeah. headquarters. And they sat me down and they handed me the script, which was printed on red. They were pencil ask, marks, yeah. you know, scratching things out. I wasn't allowed to take up my camera. Right. Um, I was only allowed to take notes on like a notepad. And they just sat me on the couch. And they're like, okay, look, you have as much time as you need within three hours or whatever. But if you have to use the restroom, you have to go give it to this guy. And he has to lock it in his desk oh, wow. because you have to be very protective of that. Because, I mean, it was literally yeah. the script of The Last Jedi. Right. I had to sign a lot of NDAs. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm crying. I'm having feelings. And I suddenly realize I've just drunk 30 ounce coffee <laughs> while having all these feelings. And so I look up to see the guy and he's gone. His door is locked. His okay. room is, the, the lights are out. And I was like, I'm about to like be myself on the Lucasfilm couch. Right. It was the moment. Anyway, I eventually like found enough people to, you know, I found someone who could who could lock up the thing. But yeah, it was a very emotional journey. There was one point where I was just tears streaming down my face. Yeah. And you know, you got to the Leia part, didn't you? And I was like, oh, I mean, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course I could had to go, you know, like six months telling literally no one about any of this. Right. Um so, yeah, it was a super fun experience doing that. And then, you know, writing the book was uh, my first experience with how Star Wars is changing constantly in real time. We lost a 14-page um, outline. Like, mm. we had gotten the okay. It was 14-page single-spaced outline that we worked on for weeks, maybe even months. And then one day, I came home, and there was a box of cookies on the front porch. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> expensive New York cookies. Like, is someone trying to poison me? No one knows where I live. I live in the mountains. Yeah. and then I get an email like three hours later that's like dear Delilah you've received the cookies and so now we can tell you <laughs> we have lost the entire outline could you please pitch three new stories Whoa. by you know tomorrow at noon or something wow. yeah so we had to completely rebuild it um and then the first time I turned in my drafts and I got my comments there were 17 people arguing in the comments and it crashed word on my computer <laughs> uh, it was it was it was it's such a it's such a trip. Um, all of the work that goes into making sure that, you know, while the book remains a, a Delilah book, that it still is accurate to canon and accomplishing what it needs to accomplish and has all of the beats that a story needs. And in between the, the Del Rey editors and Lucasfilm and Story Group, you know, they're not going to let things slip through the cracks. It is obviously writing IP fiction is is so different than writing just your own worlds and your own series and all these things. And what I've always, every time a new Delta Dawson book comes out in any capacity, I'm always just so excited because the characters, no matter where you are, though, have to be three-dimensional. They have to be feeling real. And we'll get into that with, with the new book. But what I've loved seeing is your characters from Black Spire, from Phasma, all these things have become physicalized, right? Action figures and Legos and walk-around characters. Like that's really, again, talking about how connected the Star Wars publishing is – your characters seem to really then come off a page. And I think that's partially because of how really wonderful you're able to like create these worlds and create these characters. I'd be interested. Not a lot of authors get to like see, you know, a, a Captain Cardinal, you know, helmet or action figure or whatever in the, in, in real life. Uh, what has that been like for you? And what is, is that part of your consideration? Um, or is that just kind of a, a part of, of your process? You know, when a writer is coming up with characters, you know, we're, we're, they have a lot of us in them and we're trying to accomplish certain things and it's important to give them, you know, very real flaws to go with their strengths. Uh, Cardinal came from, you know, 
we started out the premise of Black Spire was kind of a Shahrazad story where um, a spy has been captured by the First Order and they're getting Phasma's story out of her. And so, you know, we had to figure out not only what Phasma's backstory was, but who would be these two characters doing the interrogation. Um, and when it came to Cardinal, I was curious about what a good person in the First Order would look like. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, if you take, you know, any army in the world, they're not all, you know, Dr. Evil twirling their mustaches. There are people who firmly believe, most of them believe that they are doing the right thing. And, you know, just what that would look like in a day-to-day -day life of a good person in the First Order who thinks the First Order is the absolute best and that they are doing the right thing. So that's where Cardinal came from. Um, and it was very fun to, to you know, watch him develop and, and, and break him. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we do to our characters but, you know also <laughs> characters like um zade calliday from uh from galaxy's edge yeah um and and also like creaky you know when you're coming up with these characters like you're creating characters that you are in love with that you love so much you know nobody sets out to create a boring character but definitely there are some where you're like okay this character like i love this one so much and i hope people do too it really uh, and again you it's so interesting with with the books you're you've been having to write really until until this one where they do have to really connect to so many different aspects of of Star Wars and I mean Black Spire is a great example of that obviously where you're having to you know lead into a, a theme park and a physicalized place and I actually we went I went for the first time with my family over Christmas and so I got my little brothers the book and I made them read it on the plane I was like okay like here Aww. you go like good luck everybody again. I keep going back to like kind of the challenge of it all where you, by having to connect dots in IP especially, but still telling a an interesting story, a cohesive story, a story with interesting and unique characters. How has that been in terms of Star Wars and then leading into the Rise of the Red Blade? What have you kind of learned and grown from that then when you have a book like this new one, you're able to really flesh out a full a full universe? Well, you know, with each character, you're you're filling a hole in the story, and they have to have a role, which you know was pretty important in Black Spire because we were kind of building a a heist crew, and you have different roles that have to be filled by different people, and you're trying to give the reader the perfect combination between familiarity and delight. So you want to show them something that's familiar and comfortable to them, but then twist something enough that they go, "Oh, I haven't seen that before," and and slightly delight them. I was thinking a lot about Brooklyn Nine Nine when I was creating the characters for Black Spire because you're thinking about you know this kind of lovable found family of people that are each uh, you know very good at maybe one thing and then kind of bad at a lot of other things, mm -hmm. and who bring you know their their previous issues in with them and can maybe find some solace together. So that was definitely a way of you know. Almost filling out like a dungeon party for a Dungeons and Dragons game. You're like, okay, well, we need a tank and we need a wizard and we need somebody with really high charisma and we need a rogue and filling out those spaces. Yeah. Um, whereas Rise of the Red Blade was very different because it's more like a character study than right. you know a group heist. And so it's more focused on the basic premise of the book, which was uh, what would it take to make an earnest, good-hearted, innocent, honest person as a Jedi uh, fall to the dark side and choose to become an Inquisitor and hunt the Jedi, where each step of the way you want the reader to be able to be like, yeah, that's a reasonable um, response to what you just had went through. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't want the reader to go like, that was stupid. Like, you know, I guess in, when I write young adult, we call that too stupid to live. When sometimes you see characters with teenage brains make bad decisions because right. they do. Uh, so with Iscat, the whole point is just that 
every step of the way, you're supposed to go, yeah, I guess I feel that way too. Until the end, you're going, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I have agreed to what? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that's every step of the way. She thinks she's making um, the, the right choice in pursuit of her connection with the force and the way that she felt that she's been called and her, her curiosity. Moving into the book itself, because it is it is so unique and so, so wonderful of, of a story and of a character. And it really reminds me again, uh, some of my favorite Star Wars books from Expanded Universe are like Traitor the Jason Solo book or the... I've, I've got Trader out like right now on my bookshelf because I was reading chunks of it because Stover's just, he's the Stover, master. So incredible. Stover every time. But you think about those character studies, right? You think about like crafting a, a character and with Trader, it is kind of his his fall and his turn and everything like that. And with Iscat, who I went and looked, I had to go read, you know, the Darth Vader comics that she's in. And she's in... Not that much. Like she does not. No, you know, like an issue and a half. Yeah, that, and I was like, oh, okay. I I didn't realize that at all. I was like, oh, maybe there there was nothing. And so really creating her from whole cloth and really creating one of the greatest Star Wars characters, like in a very long time. Um, what were the challenges of of getting in her head specifically, and then making sure that her journey, like you were saying, feels earned, and and really takes readers on you know a journey that you know how it ends, right? That issue and a half, you know how her journey ends, not to get in too much detail, but but that it's is... It's been out since 2017. That's the thing. It, it's 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 there. It, it's You know how it, it ends. And so I'd be curious, those challenges, but also like kind of how you approach that. Yeah, it's kind of similar as to Phasma in that, in, you know, in each book we see a character at, if not the end of their life, because I, I haven't seen Phasma's body... But, you know, at a certain point of their life, and then you're trying to fill in the beginning that, you know, what brought them to that point. So with Iscat, what we see in Charles Sewell's comic is that she does something that I would consider reprehensible and unforgivable, is the whole comic centers on this action. And so it felt like my job was to look at that and engineer a backstory that would make that choice a reasonable one, um, while also understanding that the dark side uh, is a liar and it's very um, cloying and twisting. And so once the dark side has gotten into you, you become kind of an unreliable narrator to your own life. And that some of the things, some of your, that many of your responses will not be honest for you or um, honest in reaction to what's occurred to you. So, you know, not to to spoil that moment, but if you read, uh, you know, Rise the Red Blade, the epilogue basically takes Charles Sewell's comic and adds it to the end of the book, kind of as the book's ending, right. um, and novelizes it. So you don't have to, you can read the comic, you don't have to, but it'll tell you basically what happens. So the whole rest of the book's explaining how she got to that point. So I had definitely knew that part of her original her original character creation was that she had a, well, okay, how, how spoilery do you, like, are we getting spoilery? Or it's, uh, it's really up to you. This, this will come out probably next week. So the book will have been out how many weeks? Okay. So yeah, in the Charles Sewell comic, she steals a, an infant from a mother um, on Vader's request. And so I knew that taking her to the beginning, I would have to give her a reason that she would have an antipathy, antipathy toward mother's motherhood toward the concept of who gets to raise this child and who deserves to raise this child. And so that was kind of put into her DNA as a character. Um, and we already know from Wikipedia and, <laughs> and what Charles has given us that nobody knows her species yeah. or what planet she's from. And so that kind of went into the character as well when you think, well, what would be the first kind of cracks in someone's relationship with the Jedi? And you think about, you know, these four sensitive children are given to the Jedi and on one hand, it's like, 
this magical wizard gets to go to magical wizard school. And on the other hand, you're going, this weird kid gets put in an orphanage. <laughs> Instead of having personal one-on-one contact with a loving uh, caregiver who shares your DNA and looks into your eyes and meets your every need and reinforces the fact that you are loved, uh, you're kind of thrown into an orphanage where, you know, maybe a nanny droid or maybe a, a nanny person kind of takes care of your needs, but you're never going to have that one-on-one connection that humans at very least are, uh, it's built into our genetics and our life that like we need that connection or we get pretty weird. Um, right. So she's kind of alienated as part of the Jedi and then she doesn't know her species. And uh, then she gets a master and her master maybe doesn't choose her for the reasons that we've been told masters choose Padawans. And so she never has that connection. So again and again, she's denied the connection that would make someone, uh, you know, have self-worth and and feel unconditionally loved and feel secure and heard and seen. And again and again, she's denied that. And and so that was, you know, what became the the cracks that let the dark side in. You mentioned the Jedi Temple. And one of the things that really stands out, especially in the first half of the book, is kind of your world building of the Jedi Temple, especially during the Clone Wars, right? We'd seen a little bit in Brotherhood with Mike Chen. And it's just every time, I don't know why, it's just like the best. Like it really is like, like, oh, I I love this. I love how you expanded it. How did you kind of approach, you know, there's so much that's already been told. And and really that was when Clone Wars happened, you're like, oh, we only have about three years in here to really kind of delve in to what is happening. And so you're already kind of cramming it, but you do it in such a way that it really kind of threads a lot of the different story points that have already been established, even the Battle of Geonosis. How do you continue to expand on what's happening with the Jedi and, and the Jedi's fall, but then also, you know, where where do you find those pressure points to really kind of delve in to make it make sense for the character rather than just, again, making it a Wikipedia entry for, for the Clone Wars? Well, I mean, at every juncture, you just stop and think, what haven't I seen before? What in this moment have I not seen a point of view before? So that's what it is, just trying to, you know, find a path through that, again, is going to be familiar to fans, but also like slightly delight them. So, you know, I show the same uh, big droid factory that you see in um, Attack of Clones, but not through the point of, you know, the most powerful scion of the Jedi and the senator, you know, but like this frightened teenager who's like, what is all this? Um, and the the confusion, and we see like how little the lower level functionary Jedi were told. Like, yeah. sure, Obi Wan knows what's up because he has Mace Windu's number on speed dial, but the rest of them are just like, I'm 16 years old. This is the first time I've ever used my lightsaber to do anything other than you know zip zap play in the training room, and I don't know what's going on. And uh, it's also the first time that they're basically told, Yeah, kill somebody if you've got to. Right. So that I just feel like that hadn't that wasn't something that we'd seen before. So I but I did take them through that same kind of route that Anakin and Padme yeah. took because I knew that readers would really be able to picture that in their heads. Um, you know, like when the freeze comes to life to get Anakin, like what that looks like one thing when it's Anakin, it looks like another thing when it's a bunch of 16-year-olds, you know, that basically are on a field trip with their <laughs> with their mentors. Um, so it was, just, it was really fun taking a thing that we'd seen and and making it more frightening and more chaotic. And, you know, just showing what it's like when, like, you are never given all of the information that you need because it is coming from, you know, a senator to a senator playing around a telephone filtered through Mace and Yoda and what they think may or may not be right based on the intel that they were given yesterday. Right. And they're just like, yeah, sure, go. It is it is both insane and also makes complete sense. And that, I think, is why it works so well. Like, it really, you're just like, yes, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, this is it. And this is how what they think about, like, oh, is it a captured senator or something? Like, they have no idea. You know, we've seen that 
that like in Saving Private Ryan and other, and other movies where like these are literal children that are just being sent out to die and they're just like, yeah, jump out of the boat after you've thrown up for 20 minutes and shoot anything that's a different color. Like right. they're, they're just told so little and they're so expendable and it's kind of heartbreaking. Well, on the heartbreaking note, and again, with, with the need to expand, but for the story's sake, is the Inquisitors, is Inquisitorious and all that stuff. And, you know, we kind of go into it knowing as much as Iscat, right? We we really don't know that much about them. We don't know how much, like, they function and where they are. And you're able to really craft that world in a very specific way, but also in a way that answers a lot of the questions we've already seen in Rebels and Obi-Wan. How did you approach that world? And did you try to have it mirror the Jedi Temple at all? Or was it just its own beast that kind of uh, ran on its own? Well, everything we have, to my understanding this far, is from Charles Sewell's comic, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is not a... Like, he doesn't give us a schematic drawing. You know, like when I was writing um, Phasma, like, I have my book of Star Wars, you know, my fold-out of what an Imperial Star Destroyer looks like from the side. But, like, we don't have that at the Inquisitor headquarters. So I have to go through Charles's book and try to figure out how would you describe these areas, what name would be given to them, um, that sort of thing. So it was definitely, you know, an interesting aspect of taking what little we have that you know might have been kind of a throwaway five years ago because we never thought it would go anywhere where Charles was like yeah it's a pit you're like okay (laughs) well where did the you know what tell me more about this pit what happens there but all you have is like here's one image of a pit so it was just using imagination to try to piece together everything in a way that made sense Um, and also you know some of the things that we see in the Inquisitors uh, in Charles Sewell's book kind of explaining them in more of a narrative fashion and and why things work the way they do so it was all you know trying to figure out how the Inquisitors would be run when we already know that you know the Emperor is running this place such that he never wants anyone to feel comfortable to increase their power in a way that would be a threat to him to join together with others so they foment you know disunity among these poor people who are already tortured and broken and traumatized because they know that if two or three of them get together, they're going to become powerful enough to maybe challenge somebody bigger. So it's it's also very like, it doesn't make sense to the general, like nobody wants to live that way. Nobody's like, yeah, I want to go live in a fraternity where I'm hazed all the time and people try to kill me and nobody likes me, <laughs> you know, um, very weird uh, way to live and and you know there's also certain things I wasn't allowed to um, establish for canon so people reading this book would be like why didn't you show this and I'd be like let me which means someone else is doing that one day and we'll get to find out um, hopefully through you know tv or movies I'm very curious to witness it myself but uh, like I said Star Wars is a, a pie with more and more pieces missing <laughs> and you grab whatever pieces you can get and plant your flag and uh, establish your canon but some things about the Inquisitors like we still don't know I guess a final question for the book, and we touched on it at the beginning of it, but with the epilogue, just being like, here, here she is. Because honestly, I kind of, I was approaching the end. I was like, ooh, are we gonna get a second? Are we gonna get a second book? Like, you know, this, there's enough in there that you could maybe tell that story, and then obviously it ends, and she ends, and her story ends, and that's all within the, the span of the novel. Was there a challenge to make sure that her story felt full, even though it's cut short, like? Knowing that she has an end and knowing that you're telling a certain amount of time for her, was there a challenge going into it for you? Or how did you kind of structure the novel to make sure that her life felt full and her her story and character felt 
um, three-dimensional. I mean, the most frustrating part is when a main character dies in Star Wars, it is typically not the author's choice. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Salvatore did not want to kill Chewbacca. I did not want to kill a certain friend of mine. Right. Uh, we are told that some people have to have that ending, and it's our job to make it as impactful and meaningful and reasonable as possible. Right. So, you know, I inherited this character that all that we knew was her ending so far. So, you know, it was a uniquely fun challenge trying to make the life we get to see as uh, as meaningful and deep and, um, I don't know if satisfying is the word, but the questions asked at the beginning are hopefully asked, answered by the end. You know, overall, what she wants most is freedom to be herself, um, which she is denied from a very young age and put in increasingly smaller boxes and told, you know, the way you are is not great. Be this way instead. So that's the thread of the whole book is her trying to find different ways to be free to be herself. And in the end, she is, which, you know, is, is also the last lines from Charles's comic or confirm that. So it definitely felt to me like, you know, I, I, I did as much as I could to give her all of the ups and downs in life. You know, she has tragedy. She has discovery. She finds out, you know, what she was meant to do. She has love. Um, she, you know, very much fails at having girlfriends, <laughs> but you know, she her her main questions are answered. Maybe she's not always satisfied with the answer, but you know, to me, it feels like a, a completed circle. Hopefully, listeners have figured it out by now how much I love this book. <laughs> but hopefully, people are are excited to go on that journey or have already gone on that journey with this cat. Um, I guess shifting to projects and shifting to just your style because you are so prolific, and we can talk after. But there, I, I'm having to kind of deal with. You know, when you have so many different projects and so many different parts of your brain working on different things, how do you balance all of these separate worlds that you're creating and writing, both IP, both personal? And then how do you make sure that your attention and your, you know, style remains at least somewhat manageable and somewhat consistent? I can only really first draft one project at a time. I would find it very difficult to, you know, be writing the violence at the same time as Minecraft Mob Squad. <laughs> um, I think of writing a book as a first draft. My first drafts are very fast and dirty. They're front to back. I don't stop. I don't go back. I think of it like when you're carrying your laundry from the dryer to the bed. Like if you drop a sock and you stop to get the, the sock, you're going to drop the pants. And when you go to pick up the pants and the sheets are going to fall. So like you just have to hold it and run. And if the sock falls, you get the sock later. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my first drafts take, you know, anywhere from, I mean, I've written books in two weeks. Yeah. To uh, Star Wars books, you usually get about six weeks yeah. if you're lucky. Um, some people get more, some people, most people get less. Um, so, you know, while I'm first drafting, like that's that's pretty much everything that's happening in my head. Um, I have to set a lot of, I already have ADHD. <laughs> I have struggles. My phone has like 50 yeah. alarms at any given time. Um, I always have an index card to-do list of what needs to happen the next day that I cross things off of. Um, because my whole my whole mental landscape is nothing but that book like I am all RAM and no memory yeah and then you know once the book is is kind of done with the first draft I do a very quick second draft to make the whole thing cohesive and match and add the things I didn't know at the beginning add those from the end and make it all match then I you know either send it away to my editor in the case of Star Wars or if it's just me in the book like let it rest for a couple weeks and try to forget it which is not hard because I forget stuff very quickly 
Um, and then, you know, edits, I also do in big chunks. So I just kind of always have to work in chunks like that rather than, you know, edit, I, mean, I don't write this book in the morning and then edit that book in the afternoon and then do this in the evening. It's like one book at a time is, is how I hold it all together. In the past, um, I've used playlists mm -hmm. uh, to where when I hear the music, so like I'll find a song that feels like the book. It's not like, oh, every word of this song means this book. It just feels like the book. And then I'll put together a playlist by going through Spotify and going to like, you know, reader, uh, if you like this, you'll like that. And right. I just dump a bunch of songs in there. Or sometimes like with Phasma, just the Mad Max Fury Road album, just right. the whole album, <laughs> that sort of thing. But when I hear the music, I'm kind of conditioned to be in that world. So oh, I don't have that like, oh, no, it's a blank page. What do I do? It's like I hear the opening lines of, of Fury Road. I'm like, OK, I'm there and I'm already typing. Yeah. Um, so that helps. If you ever are on Spotify, Delilah S. Dawson, you can see most of the playlists for all of my books and my workout playlist, too. But they're, <laughs> you know, they're by by book name for this book. I I didn't need one. It was already it was already in my head. There we go. I love it. I guess to close out, you know, I'm sure you can't talk about IP projects, but what is next beyond Star Wars and beyond everything? Where can people find you? What are you working on and what's coming out? Well, my website is DelilahSDawson.com. And then on all of the social media I'm on, I'm Delilah S. Dawson. So that's right now it's uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky. Um, and then if you ever actually want to talk to me or ask me questions, because I um, have a policy of trying to help new writers with their un ungoogleable publishing questions, because right. I, I learned so much on Twitter. So if you really want to talk to me on Twitter, I'll be there and I can answer questions I'm allowed to answer for you. Right. Um, I have two more books out this year. Um, I have a sweet YA romance called Midnight at the Houdini that's inspired by uh, Sleep No More in New York oh. and The Tempest by Shakespeare. That's out in September. And then in October, I have a horror novella called Bloom that is uh, kind of like if Hannibal was girls at a <laughs> farmer's market. Oh, incredible. Um, that I wrote for my 16-year-old my daughter who was like, why are all of those cool serial killers boys? And I was like, let me write you a book. <laughs> and then also I have uh, my third Minecraft book, uh, which is called Minecraft Mob Squad Don't Fear the Creeper is out in paperback today, which I just found out via oh, Instagram post. <laughs> so yeah, if you have a kid who's into Minecraft, I wrote a whole series that the pitch is Goonies, but Minecraft. <laughs> That's a hell of a pitch. That's great. Uh, well, awesome. I really appreciate the time, obviously, and I cannot say enough good things about this book, but then obviously every other Star Wars book and otherwise that comes out. Uh, a Delilah Dawson book is always a must read, and so I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again to Delilah for coming on the show, as well as Delibrate Books for arranging this conversation. I cannot stress how much I recommend Rise of the Red Blade. The link is in the show notes. We have a few more episodes in the works, including my conversation with Return of the Jedi creature legend, Judy Elkins. So if you're enjoying the show, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to episodes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really means the world. That's all for now. Until next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.